Today we're picking back up in our series in Matthew. We're in Matthew's Gospel, and this series is called The Coming of the King, because Matthew's looking. There's a king we've been waiting for, a king everybody's been anticipating, and we see Jesus come, and he's going to be declared to be that king. Now, the section we're in, Matthew chapter 8 and 9, deal with Jesus' power. Jesus performs nine miracles in this chapter, in these two chapters. And those miracles, here's what he's doing. He's saying, I have power over the sin that has caused you to need a miracle. Whether it be a storm, whether it be a bodily disease, Jesus cares about those. He physically actually heals those. But the reason that people have those is because sin exists in this world. That's the great problem of all of humanity over all time. In Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve rebel against God. And ever since then, all creation, all the world, all humanity has felt the impact of sin. And ever since then, we've been looking, going, can we reverse the curse that came in Genesis 3? So Jesus comes, and he does these miracles showing he has power over the sin that seeks to dominate our life. He has power to heal of disease. He has power over nature. And today, what we're going to see is he has power over death. We've seen the last few weeks, they lower a man before him and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Shocking. Because only God can forgive sins. And in that very act, Jesus is declaring that he is God. And then he tells the man to rise and walk. Last week, we saw him call Matthew a tax collector, a man that's perceived to be the worst of the worst sinners. And then Jesus goes a step further. He eats with Matthew, this tax collector, and he says this, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That Jesus' mission on earth was to come and deal with sin. He came to call sinners back to God and that he himself is the way to God. So back in Genesis 3, God had made Adam and Eve. He made a declaration to them. He said, when you eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you will die. So God had told them there's a death sentence coming if you do that. And Adam and Eve eat of it. And God in his mercy allows them to live. They sacrifice an animal in their place. They covers them with animal skins in Genesis chapter 3. And we see ever since then, we're on a death sentence. That's all of our sentences. For our sin, you are sentenced to death. And the reality is, is we all, all of us are dying. We're in the process of dying. And that sounds very bleak, sounds very morbid, but there's great hope in it. And that's what we're going to see today. Today we're going to see two miracles 
We're going to see a miracle within a miracle. And we're in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 18 through 26. So let's stand as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. It reads, While he was saying these things to him, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to her, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went through all the district. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, we thank you for your word. Your word declares that all men are like grass. And that all our glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word, O Lord, stands forever. We ask that this be the word that's faithfully preached today. We recognize that unless you speak through your word and through your servant, nothing of any true significance is spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this uh, story, same narrative is told in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8. Matthew actually gives the least detail and the briefest telling of this story. Mark and Luke both give us a lot more detail. So we're going to refer back to both Mark and to Luke as we walk through this passage because they both are going to give us a lot more detail on what's happening. So now Matthew, when he writes this story, he puts it here because he wants us to hear this in the context that Jesus came to call sinners. That's the context we've got this story in. And it says, while Jesus was saying this, a ruler. Now, what type of ruler is this? We know from the other Gospels, this man is a ruler of the synagogue. Now, when you read your Old Testament, you never see that word synagogue. It's not in the Old Testament. You don't find the synagogue there. So in the New Testament, the question should be, what is the synagogue? Why is it there? You see, in the Old Testament, God's people came to Jerusalem to worship at a temple. They would gather. God's presence rested uniquely in the temple. They would come and worship Him there. They would offer sacrifices there. But after captivity, the nation of Israel was scattered all over the world. The temple was destroyed. And they began to set up places of worship anywhere 
that there were 10 Jewish families, they would set up a synagogue. And a synagogue was a place of worship. It developed out of the need for a place to worship during captivity. It simply means this, to bring together a place of assembly. And what they would do is they would have 10 elders that ruled the synagogue. And of those 10 elders, they would appoint one of them to be the ruler. He would be the, the lead administrator of the synagogue. So he would be the one who would appoint who would speak that week, who would appoint who would read the passage that week, who would pray, who would read the law. And he would administrate all the function and duty of the synagogue. So this man who comes to Jesus, he's the synagogue ruler in Capernaum. Now Capernaum is Jesus' hometown during his ministry. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and his adult ministry, his base of operation was Capernaum. He called four fishermen who were operating Capernaum. Peter, his brother Andrew, and then the brothers James and John. Last week he called Matthew, who was the tax collector in Capernaum. Now we see a synagogue ruler come to Jesus. Now I mentioned this last week. Matthew, he wouldn't have been allowed in the synagogue. They would have had a list. These people are not allowed here because of their great sin. And Matthew would be near the top of that list. Do you know who maintained that list? The synagogue ruler. So this synagogue ruler here, he knew Matthew. He had put Matthew's name on the list. This guy cannot come in here. And he's heard of Jesus. He's heard people speak of Jesus. And now he's going to approach Jesus. Now the synagogue was to be a place of worship, but what had happened in most synagogues over time is they had become corrupted. There would be places where you came and heard about the God of Abraham. And you were to believe and have faith like Abraham, but over time, what happened? Synagogues became a place of seeing if people are obeying. Are you keeping every jot and tittle of the law? Are you paying attention to all the details of the law? Are you obeying? Are you doing what you're supposed to be? So the synagogue over time became more and more corrupted, and the rulers often took advantage of the people for their own personal gain. So this synagogue ruler, look, he comes, and he knelt. Two things this man does. First, he seeks out Jesus. Jesus, he said, I, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus went and found Matthew, this man who would have been definitely viewed as a sinner. But this man, the synagogue ruler, he would be viewed as the righteous. Everybody would say, there's nobody more righteous than the synagogue ruler. Last week we saw the worst sinner in Matthew. This week we see the most self-righteous person in all of Capernaum the synagogue ruler. And he has to come to Jesus. He seeks Jesus out. He has to 
let his self-righteousness die, his pride, his arrogance, and say, I'm going to go seek Jesus. In order to do that, he has to be really desperate. Because when the synagogue ruler, when the synagogue ruler comes to Jesus, everybody in Capernaum, they're going to be talking about the scandals. Did you see Jesus? He went to a tax collector and then had a meal with him. Scandal. Did you see the synagogue ruler? He went to Jesus and knelt before him. Again, another scandal. Everybody in Capernaum will be talking about these events. Matthew, who began to follow Jesus, the synagogue ruler who humbled himself, who everybody viewed as the picture of holiness and righteousness, he comes and kneels before Jesus, seeks him out. That word knelt in the Greek often gets translated as worship. Now, I'm not saying he worshiped Jesus, but it's very close to the same idea. And he kneels before Jesus, and here's why. He's so desperate, there's nowhere else to go. That's truly how we are to come to Jesus. We're so desperate, there is nowhere else we can go. So this guy comes, he kneels before Jesus, and look at what he says. My daughter has just died. Now in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, it says that she is dying. She's not dead yet. And even in the Greek here, it implies that she's not dead yet. So she is near death. He reaches the point. His daughter's about to die. He's probably tried everything he knows to try. And he says, I've got one hope. I'm desperate. I've got to humble myself and go to Jesus because I believe he can heal her. What this man does is, in this culture is radical. Because look, he says, he says, my daughter's just died. Again, she's dying. She's in the process of dying. She's, it's, what this means Everybody knows this girl's going to die. It's certain. They're not debating, oh, she might make it. They're all going, no, she's about to die. She's only got a few breaths left. There's no hope anymore. Death is certainly coming upon her. And it said, he says to Jesus, but come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. Again, how did this synagogue ruler view Jesus? Jesus just went and ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. This synagogue ruler would look at Jesus and go, you're unclean. By the people you're hanging out with, our synagogue rules would say, you're unclean. And now he comes to Jesus and says, I want you to lay your hands on my daughter. Now, some of you have experienced, very tragically, the, the loss of a child. Um, from what I've read and studied and counseled with people, I, I don't know that there's anything more difficult to deal with in life than the loss of a child. It sticks with people forever. 
You don't, you don't ever really get over it. Those of you who've walked through it know that's true, that when a child dies, you never reach a point where you're fully recovered from that. It's a hard thing. You see, life has an order. Our parents, they're supposed to die before us. And when your parents die, many of you have had parents die, you mourn, you grieve. But you didn't see the day of their birth, you only saw the day of their death. You see, that's the way life's supposed to work. You get to see the day of the birth, or you get to see the day of death. But to see both is really difficult. So for a parent, they see the birth of their child, and then they see the death of their child. And there's few things that carry more weight. There's few things that have a deeper tragedy, a deeper pain, a, a, a deeper sorrow to them than this. So realize where this, this man is. He's in the midst of a very painful, tragic difficult situation. His daughter is about to die. He is desperate. His motive for coming to Jesus, it's not entirely pure, is it? I'm coming to Jesus just to worship Jesus. No, he comes to Jesus going, help me. There's nowhere else to go. I've tried everything else. Come help me. That's how we're come to Jesus. You see, in salvation, we may look and go, hey, I've tried everything this world has to offer. I've tried to find peace and joy and contentment in this life on my own. I've tried to find purpose and meaning. I can't find it. I can't fix my own sin problem. I can't be good enough. Every time I try to be really good, guess what happens? I end up messing up saying something, doing something that hurts somebody. I can't do it. I can't keep it up. I'm not righteous unto salvation. And we come to Jesus saying, nowhere else to go. I'm dying. Save me. And that's how this man comes to Jesus. He's desperate. Now we're told that Jesus, it says, he rose and followed him and his disciples. So this man comes to get Jesus and, and no doubt, Jesus probably knew who this man was. His name is Jairus, we're told in other Gospels. And he goes with Jairus to his house. But there's huge crowds, we're told in the other Gospels, around them. So Jesus is walking, and these huge crowds are, are pushing in on him. And as they do, it says in verse 20, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, came up behind him. Again, somebody else very, very, very desperate. Think about how long that is. 12 years, a discharge of blood. This woman had been in pain and suffering. Not only was she in pain and suffering, she was an outcast. A woman who has a discharge of blood is declared unclean. For 12 years, this woman's unclean. No one will marry her. No one will touch her. No one will come near her. 
She's in complete isolation. She's desperate. She's in pain. She's in suffering. This is a hard, difficult thing that she's dealing with. When I first moved here, I read a, a book. Uh, many of you are familiar with uh, Reg and Catherine Hamlin. They moved here in the 1950s and um, stayed here until their passing. Uh, Catherine Hamlin died in 2020. I think she had what would be called maybe a state funeral where everybody came and honored her service uh, here in Ethiopia. Their book, if you haven't read it, and uh, if you haven't read it and you're not from Ethiopia, I would uh, encourage you to read it. It's a great book on, goes through the history of Ethiopia, uh, modern history, and gives you some good perspectives on, on life here. But her and her husband were doctors, and they found these young women who had had difficult pregnancies. Often the children would die during pregnancy, during trying to give birth. And they would labor for days. And in the process of that, their bodies would be so damaged that they would have a continual flow of fluids in their body. And because of that, their husbands would often leave them. People, they, 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 they would have a smell to them because of the fluids, and they would be cast out of their village. It, it, was, a, it was a brutal um, situation. And even as I read the book when I came to those parts, talking about those young girls who, and what they struggled with, it, I, I had to often skim read through them because it was so painful and difficult to hear. And these young women, Catherine and her husband Reginald Hamlin, found that they could with the surgery, heal most of these women. Most of these women could be treated with a, a, a surgery, and uh, they actually opened a hospital. It's, it's called, the book's called Hospital Down by the River, and um, the hospital's really close to my house. It's, I run by it most days. It's called the Hamlin Fistula Hospital. But these women were cast out, treated terribly. They had no hope. And they would come and have these surgeries done. And, and that's how this woman is here. She's desperate. She has no hope. She has no place to go except Jesus. And she's, uh, we're told in Mark's gospel, she's spent all her money on doctors. And the doctors, they made it worse they tried to make it better, but it kept getting worse and worse and worse. And she's in a desperate situation. And in verse 21, it says, She said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, in, in, in Israel, men would wear a tunic. And over their tunic, they would wear what's called a kanaf. It's a, a Leviticus, a Deuteronomy speaks of this, Deuteronomy 22. They would take these kanaf and a man would wear them over their shoulders. Jesus most likely wore one of these and they would have, everything has meaning. It has knots, certain number of knots means something. Five knots reminds them of the, the five books of the Torah, the ten, the ten commandments. Everything reminds them of something. And she said to herself, if only I touch 
his robe, I can be made well. Now you may remember there's a story in the Old Testament where David and Saul, Saul is trying to kill David. And David hides in a cave and he finds Saul coming into the cave. And he sneaks up and he cuts the corner off of Saul's robe. And then he's struck him with great guilt of what he's done. Because in doing that, he's asserting his own authority, saying, your authority, your power is gone. So when men in the ancient world, they wore these, it was a symbol of their connection to God. They're reminding them of God. But in, in Malachi, we may have this for the screen, in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, here's what it says, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. It says, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So many said there was a, a tradition that developed that when Messiah came, there would be healing in the wings of Messiah. And they would call these things, they would call the, the kanaf, whenever they stood up to do a blessing, they would hold it up like this. You see how that looks like wings? And they'd say there's healing in the wings of Messiah. So when you come and find Messiah, you touch his wings and there's going to be healing there. So we don't know for sure that that's what this woman was thinking, but she knew if she could just touch him, there would be healing. And she fights through a crowd. That's a bold move. Nobody wanted to touch this woman. And she touches Jesus. And it says she is healed. Listen in verse 22. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. few things. This is the only person that Jesus calls daughter. Take heart, daughter. A term of love, of compassion. We know she's not literally Jesus' daughter, but it's a, it's a term of nearness. I care about you. I, I, I love you. And he says, your faith has made you well. Her faith was a faith in Jesus. Her faith in Jesus, the object of her faith. Jesus is the one who made her well. She had faith that Jesus could do this. And she's healed. It says that she tried to hide. When Jesus said, hey, who touched me? This woman doesn't want to be recognized. She tried to hide. But then Jesus sees her. Twelve years. Now we're told this little girl that's about to die is twelve years old. Same age, or not same age, 12 years old, her entire life this one woman's been suffering. And for a Jewish girl, it's at age 12. For a Jewish boy at 13, you'd be declared a young man. For a Jewish girl at age 12, you'd be declared a young girl. They would have a bar mitzvah, a, a bat mitzvah for a girl, where you take on the commandments for yourself. And this young girl is sitting here dying. So this woman's healed. Look, it says instantly in verse 22, the woman is made well. Beautiful picture. Jesus came to heal. Heal us of our greatest problem is a sin problem. He also physically, literally healed people. 
One of the great joys our elders have, uh, it's even in our bulletin, we love to pray with the body. This past elder meeting on Monday night, we had a, a young man who's struggling with, with uh, great illness. And we had the joy of praying with him. James chapter 5, verse 14 says, If any of you is sick, let him go to the elders and they'll pray over him. Now, does that guarantee healing? No, it doesn't. It's just a step of faith, trusting God, saying, God, I know you can heal. And I'm coming to ask the elders to pray for healing. We consider that a joy. If you or someone you know ever need prayer for healing, our elders are happy to do it after service, between services. You can come to our elder meeting, talk to one of our elders. We'd love to pray with you. We consider it a privilege. We can't promise healing, but we pray for it. We know Jesus can heal. We believe he often does heal. We don't understand all his ways. Why was this woman suffering for 12 years? It's a long time. Yet Jesus heals her. And now, in the midst of going to, to heal this girl nearly dying, can you imagine the synagogue ruler Jairus going, come on Jesus, she's about to die. Why are you stopping to talk to this woman? We've got to go. She's unclean, let's go. And notice, everybody that Jesus is touching in this story would all be declared unclean. And that's what Jesus does. He comes and touches the unclean, takes their sin, their uncleanliness upon himself, and cleanses us. That's what he does for your sin. He takes your sin upon you, him, and it leads to death. And he dies the death that you deserved and gives you the life that his sinless life was rewarded with. Look at this. and It says in verse 23, When Jesus came to the ruler's house, they saw flute players and a large crowd making a commotion. Now, for, for me, I couldn't really relate to this very well until I moved to Ethiopia. Because a funeral in the United States, it's very quiet. Nobody says anything hardly. It's very somber. People walk up and they'll say, I'm sorry about your loss to the loved ones. But it's a very quiet. The graveside is very quiet, very somber. You may sing a, a song of reflection and read a psalm. But the first time I went to an Ethiopian graveside, you've been to those, they're not quiet, are they? They're not somber. Oh, there is mourning. There is wailing. There's noise. Why? Because we're sad. We express our emotion. We feel terrible. And in Judaism, they would rip their clothes and put dirt on their head, put ashes on their head, and people would go, you look terrible. That's how I feel. Someone I love has died, and you can see how I feel. See, my culture, we try to hide it. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Well, you just lost a loved one. Yeah, but I'm doing okay. You know, here they would look terrible. And these flute players and 
They would actually hire people. If you had more money, you would hire more people to come and play the flute and wail and make commotion. And Jesus comes and finds this. The girl has died during the delay. Jesus stopped to heal the woman. And now the girl is dead. And Jesus, look at what he says. He puts them out and he says, Go away, verse 24, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. For the saint, for the Christian, that's what saint simply means. Death has lost its sting. Death is a mere sleep. For the Christian, you die. The moment this body dies, you wake up in the presence of God Almighty. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this girl has just died. But Jesus, his view of death is radically different. She's just sleeping. She's just sleeping. And they laugh at him. And when the crowd was put outside in verse 25, he went in and took her by the hand. Now the worst thing you could do is touch a dead body. That makes you unclean. But he touches this girl, this dead body, takes her death upon himself. Why is this girl dead? Because we live in a fallen world where sin exists and our sin has the consequence of death. And Jesus says, I take her death upon me. I can heal. I have power even over death. Jesus is showing these things. I can forgive sin when they lower the man through the ceiling. Then he says, I came to call sinners. My uh, my power extends to the worst sinners, to Matthew, to the prostitute, to whoever you consider the worst sinner, that's who my, my power extends to. And my power is so much that it can overcome death. You see, in these chapters, we're seeing Jesus' glorious, radical power that has never been seen before. And in seeing this, we go, there's no one, no one like Jesus. He has all power. He has all authority. And we're reminded of that here. Now, the word of this resurrection spreads. Think about that. Jesus raised the synagogue ruler's daughter. How do you think the synagogue ruler in Capernaum spoke of Jesus moving forward? This guy was probably a Pharisee. We always give the Pharisees a bad name. But many of the Pharisees trusted in Jesus. In fact, most of the early church in Jerusalem was made up of former Pharisees who placed their faith in Jesus. Imagine this synagogue ruler began to speak different of Jesus. He has power over death. And for us, that's glorious news. And today we, we get to celebrate that with a, with a real tangible reminder. We call it communion. Communion means that you commune. You have relationship with God Almighty. So when we do communion, we're reminding ourselves, we have relationship with God Almighty because he, His sinless body was broken in your place 
His blood was spilled in your place. He took your death and gave you his victory. So as we take communion, we mourn. We mourn the fact that our sin required Jesus' death. But we celebrate that just as Jesus took that girl by the hand and raised her from the dead, for all who've trusted in Jesus, our security's in him. And to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. If you're here today and you've never trusted in the power of Jesus to save, our elders will be up here at the tables and even after service, we would love to talk with you, to pray with you. If you're here today and you found that you've been living more for the things of this world, looking to find your hope in it more than Christ, we consider it a delight to pray for you, to see you repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this um, beautiful encounter that Jesus has. Two women. Lord, we thank you for this example. As we read the gospel narratives, we see that Jesus had women who followed him in a culture where that wasn't the norm and that he loved and cared for. Lifted these women up. That this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years was healed by touching Jesus, her faith in Jesus. And Lord, there's some here today that have been suffering for many years. Same thing. We pray for healing for them. And Lord, just as Jesus touched the girl and raised her from the dead, we all want to boldly declare that death has lost its sting. And the only way we can do that is by your power, knowing that you've raised us from the dead. So as we take communion, may we be reminded that you made a way for us to commune with you and be right with you for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.